Hi, and welcome to the March 4th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida, and my desire is to help you grow in your understanding and enjoyment of God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Today's reading is in Numbers chapter 29 through 31, and then in Mark chapter 9. Uh, We've passed the halfway mark in the book of Mark. So it's Numbers chapter 29 through chapter 31 and Mark chapter 9. Now, if you've not read that yet, hit pause, go back, read it, listen to what God would say to you through his word, and then come back and listen to what I've got to say about it. But if you've already read those texts, let's get started. Okay, so in Numbers chapter 29, we come to a passage that might seem redundant, um, and honestly, it it could seriously be considered that way, uh, because the Lord through Moses is uh, simply going back through uh, some of their offerings, some of their festivals. And so in Numbers 29, verses 1 through 6, we read about the festival of trumpets, And that was the beginning of the Jewish New Year. We talked about that in uh, Leviticus. I believe it was Leviticus. And today it's called Rosh Hashanah or Rosh Hashanah. And then in Numbers 29 verses 7 through 11, we read about the offerings for the first day of atonement. And the day of atonement is called Yom Kippur. You've probably heard about that as well. It's the highest of holy days on the Jewish calendar. And in the Old Testament, it was the day when the high priest, the only day when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices first for himself and his family and then for the people of Israel. And uh, now it's uh, still um, a day that uh, that the, the Israel's... Israelites know about and the the Jews know about, uh, but certainly there's no sacrificing that's done, um, but it's still a day that's on their Jewish calendar. Then we get to verses 12 through 40. This is the offerings for the festival of shelters. And this was the seven-day celebration of the fact that God had provided for the Israelites when they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And so what they would do is you know, every year for seven days of that year, and there was a specific time when they were to do this, they would uh, go outside and they would build shelters. They would build booths or tents or tabernacles. It's called different things. But basically, they were to camp out for seven days out of the year on specific days, and it was to remind them of the uh, the time when God provided for the Israelites as they were wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. Now, I do want you to hold on to this one. I do want you to hold on to this one. The festival of shelters or tents or booths or tabernacles, whatever your translation calls it. Because when we get to Mark 9, I believe that's what the apostle, this is what the apostle Peter is referring to. The apostle Peter is a Jew. He knew the Old Testament reasonably well. Um, And uh, when Jesus is transfigured before him and he says, hey, let's build tents for all of us, I think he was referring back to this. And we are going to be talking about Mark 9 uh, later in this episode. Okay, so when we get to Numbers 30, we are primarily um, 
made cognizant of the fact of how serious vows were to the Lord or resolute promises. Lord, if you do this, then I will do this. And uh, so in the Old Testament, and there has always been people who make vows to the Lord, um, the, uh, the vow is seen to be something that is very, very, very serious. You ought not make any idle promises to God. And if you make a promise to the Lord, you better fulfill it. Um, because uh, you were making a truth statement. You're making a statement that you intend to be true, and uh, and the Lord expects you to uphold your end of the bargain. So it's better, you know, and we read about this uh, in the New Testament a little bit, but we'll get to those passages later in the year. Um, but what we see in Numbers 30 is the necessity of taking our vows seriously. But the secondary thing that essentially this chapter is about is it's about women taking vows. Um, in verses one and two, it says, when a man takes a vow, he, he better do it. He's got, you know, no recourse. He better, he better fulfill his vow. But then essentially the rest of the chapter is, okay, so what about a woman who's in her father's house? So she's still living with her father. Well, we're told that the father, if he speaks against the vow, if he speaks against it, then she's released from the vow. And maybe she would be glad that she would be released. If a guy made a rash vow, it, there's nobody to step in to, um, to defuse that. Um, but a father can do that for a daughter. In verses 6 through 8, we do realize, though, that a, a married woman also could be released from her vow if her husband spoke against it. So, I mean, we're not seeing the superiority of men over women. We don't see that. The Bible does not teach that. It does teach in roles. It teaches in women and men and the roles they fill specifically in the family and in the church. Now, in the community, you know, those are whatever it is. that they're, The Bible primarily speaks to individuals, it speaks to family, and it speaks to church. And in regard to uh, women in the family, well, the, the husband is to be the spiritual leader, and he is a fool if he does not listen to his wife and listen to the intuition that she has that God gave her that he doesn't have. Or, I mean, any number of other things. He may just be married to a woman who has a lot more common sense than he has. Or maybe she's just smarter, has a greater IQ or a greater EQ, an emotional quotient. Um, and so uh, a husband would be a fool not to listen to his wife. But the husband is still in the role of spiritual leader. And so that's what we see going on here is if a woman, a married woman makes a vow and her husband hears of it, then he who is not greater than her, but he who is the spiritual leader in the home, um, if he speaks against it, then she's not held to that vow. Um, in verse nine, it says though that a widow and a divorced woman must keep their vows. So all of a sudden we, we, we've been reading that, oh, if somebody makes a rash vow, if a woman makes a rash vow, well, then her husband or her or her dad can step in and say, nope, you, you're not going to be bound by that. That was a silly vow. No, I canceled that vow out right now. And God, God will respect that. And, and, when you get to verse 9 and it says a widow or, or divorced woman, 
are going to be held according to their vows, all of a sudden you feel kind of bad for them because there's nobody stepping in to help them. Well, that's when we understand in the New Testament, and in the Old Testament it was there as well, but in the New Testament, uh, in the book of James specifically, is um, James says, pure religion and undefiled is this, to look at the after the orphan and after the widow, after the widow. And uh, that's one of the two ladies that's mentioned in verse 9. And uh, I, I also believe that, you know, a divorced woman, especially, especially if it was a biblical divorce, where, of course, she's a sinner, but maybe like Joseph, um, in Matthew chapter 1, she found out that her spouse was uh, messing around. Joseph thought Mary was messing around, but... Um, what if a woman actually hears that her husband really has been messing around and committing adultery? Well, that's a biblical divorce. The Bible called Joseph righteous even as he was contemplating divorcing Mary. And uh, Jesus allows for that in Matthew 19. So uh, divorce women, especially those that, uh, that have gone through that, um, are to be watched after, but in, in according to vows, according to Old Testament. Now remember, this isn't written to us. This is written to the Jews in the Old Testament. Uh, they were on their own. They had to keep their vows. Verses 10 through 15, a woman's husband, once again, we're told, could cancel her vows if, if he spoke against it. And then in verse 16, we realize that this is about vows. This is about women. So anyway, just a lot of talk there, but I just want you to know that uh, two things. One, um, we ought to be very careful about the promises that we make to the Lord. And when we make that promise, when we make that vow, we better do it. It's better not to make a promise to the Lord than to make it and have no intention of fulfilling it. Um, and the second thing is, is I do want you to look through passages like this where it could seem as if the women are or inferior, or whatever to the men. I just want you to realize um, that um, looking at it through a New Testament lens, uh, there is no male or female, there's no slave or free, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. But regarding men and women, particularly in marriage, in the family, in the church, there are roles um, to be filled. And uh, there's no superiority or inferiority, but I, I do believe that that's what's going on here. The role of the father over his daughter and the role of a husband uh, leading his wife has the ability in chapter 30 to speak against a vow. Okay, so we come to Numbers chapter 31, and this is the Israelite war with Midian. The Israelite war with Midian. Now, one of the things that I want you to realize is whenever we see this, this is this can be difficult reading. Uh, when we read that, uh, you know, the 12,000 Israelites were sent in to kill every male uh, and the Midianite king and Balaam. Remember Balaam that was called to pronounce a curse, but instead he pronounced a blessing? Um, but then he undermined the Israelites by having uh, the Midianite women who were pagans, who worshipped Baal, have them intermarry with the Israelites um, and therefore take away their allegiance from God and have many of them begin to worship Baal. And so Balaam, as I shared in a previous podcast, even though he was speaking with the Lord and even though he was pronouncing 
uh, blessings and not curses on the Israelites. Balaam was not a good guy. And so they went in and they killed him. And they took the women captive. And then we realize in verses 13 through 18 that Moses got angry that they kept the women alive. He was saying, why didn't you kill the women? Um, seeing and, and the reason why is because they used, uh, Balaam used women to get the men to fall away from worshiping God. Listen to verse, um, look at verse 15. Have you let every female live? He asked them, Moses asked them. Yet they are the ones who, at Balaam's advice, incited the Israelites to unfaithfulness against the Lord in the Peor incident, so that the plague came against the Lord's community. David's, um, you know, Moses said, why did you leave the women alive? Because they were the ones that pulled Israel away. And so Moses was shocked that the women were left alive. And so all of the women that had not had relations with men were kept alive. And the clear implication was every other woman was killed. So the Israelites just didn't kill the army. They killed the women. Um, and so we're wondering, wow, you know, this is, this is not the kind of warfare that we would tolerate in, in our own country. You know, I mean, Putin right now is going after not just the military. He's going after the uh, the civilians and everybody is appalled at that because you don't do that that's that's cruel and unusual it's un, it's not only unnecessary it's evil you fight against the the opposing army you do not fight against the citizens of that community that the army is fighting for and yet we see that the israelites did that you know, the women wouldn't have been fighting in the military, and yet they killed the women. And so what's going on here? How are we to think of this? Well, friend, I want you to know that Israel was like no other country, not even like America. Now, there are many that see so many similarities between America and Israel and want to believe that we are like the second Israel or something like that. I, no, no. Um God has certainly blessed us here in America, but we, we are not Israel, and Israel is not us. They were God's chosen people, not us. God's chosen people now are those that receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Those are the chosen people. There's no nation that is a chosen nation now. It was the Israelites. Okay, so why am I making that distinction? Because there was a, a relationship that God had with the Israelites that he has never, ever had with any other country. And, and, and it's this, that Israel was, was, a, was intended to be a theocracy. In that, Moses was not the leader. Moses was like the, the spokesman. But the Lord was the leader. In the wilderness wandering, they, Moses didn't decide when they were going to camp and when they were going to leave. They followed the cloud. They followed the pillar of fire. The Lord was the one leading. They were a theocracy. There's, there's no other country that followed the Lord God and that God selected to be his own that saw the Lord God as their leader, like the Israelites. And so, as the Israelites had this relationship with the Lord... The Lord periodically told them to do things that only he had the right to do and all they the only choice they had was obedience or disobedience. 
And so whose idea was it to go in and to kill all of the Midianites? I would tell you that if it was Moses' idea to do that, then that almost certainly would have been wrong to wipe out everybody. Almost certainly would have been completely wrong. The only reason why I'm saying almost certainly is because we're still talking about God's people and Moses uh, leading in, under the power of the Holy Spirit under this in this theocracy. But if any country, America, the Russia, China, uh, Ukraine, Iran, uh, Israel, if any country, even Israel right now, yes, any country right now, because God's covenant with his people now is, is on hold. You know, this is the time of the Gentiles. Just read the book of Romans. And so Israel cannot even do what they did in the Old Testament. It's because they're not that chosen people. At least they're not experiencing the full fullness of that right now. And so if any of our countries or even Israel right now, if they were, if we were to say, you know what, we're going to go in and we're going to invade like Putin and we're not just going to aim at the army and we're going to be, un we're going to go in unprovoked, which makes it evil. What Putin is doing is completely wrong and evil because he was unprovoked. Ukraine did not pose a threat to him. It's, it's only in his distorted mind that he's creating this chaos and this confusion, but he's not even going, it's not just that he's going in unprovoked. He's, He's aiming at apartment buildings. He's aiming at residences. And that is utterly evil. So how can we look back into the Old Testament and see that, that the Israelites killed not just the army of Midian, but they killed the women? And we assume they may have killed the children too? Well, let me tell you that the answer is in chapter 31, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, Execute vengeance for the Israelites against the Midianites. After this, you will be gathered to your people. And so who was it? Who was it that initiated this conflict? Who was it that said, Execute vengeance for the Israelites against the Midianites? Who was it that said, Kill them all? It was the Lord. So then we ask the question, does the Lord have the right to give life? Well, of course, yes, he does. We as Christians believe that the Lord is the one who gives life. Well, who has the right to take life away? Once again, the Lord does. The Lord's the one who determines when we step through death's door. He's the one that has determined that day, that hour, that minute, and the occasion with which we will step through death's door. And so the Lord has the right to tell Israel, had the right. He still has the right, but he utilized that right in the Old Testament to tell the Israelite to do things that no other nation could do. Because it was the Lord who had given the instruction, the Lord who has the right to take everybody's life, and he's the one who gives everybody life. He's the one who spoke through the Israelites, and they simply were fulfilling his command. He was the one that had instructed this. Therefore, since there is no nation that is a theocracy where God is the Lord of that nation, um, there and and since there is no clarity that anyone gets from the Lord where he would tell any nation to go after and to kill everybody then then it would have to originate within the human heart the human leader which would make it evil 
which would make it wrong because we do not have the right to take life. The Lord does, we don't. So when the Lord who has the right to take life tells Moses, tell the Israelites, go in and kill them all. The Lord has the right to say that. Nobody else does. Therefore, today, no one has the right to do what the Israelites did in the Old Testament because the Lord is not giving anybody this instruction now. Okay, so let's look at Mark chapter 9. Now, let's, there's, there's quite a bit of stuff here, but let's, let's get through this fairly quickly. It, at least that's my desire. And if I stop and take a drink, or if you hear some clicking, the cough drop in my mouth, I'm really going to try to get through this without coughing. I've got some serious allergies going on. All right, so in verses 1 through 13, we have the transfiguration of Jesus. Essentially, the transfiguration of Jesus is the deity of Jesus demonstrating itself and revealing itself through the humanity of Jesus. Okay, so let me let me let me go back and kind of unpack that a little bit. Uh, if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know that we have talked about how Jesus, his nature, when he was on planet Earth doing his ministry, that he was living his life as fully man and living his life as fully God. He was both. He was both. He was fully man. He was fully God. But also, if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know that it's my conviction that Jesus, while he was fully God and is fully God <clears throat> and has always been fully God, that when he was living his life on earth, he lived it out as fully man because Adam was fully man only fully man. There was no deity in Adam. Uh, he did have the fingerprints of God on him, but he was fully man. And so Adam lost um, lost the rights to rule over planet earth. God had given him the right to rule. Let us create man in our image after our likeness and let them rule over the, the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and everything. And, and Adam lost that because of sin. And so creation itself rebelled against him. And so Adam, when he sinned, brought on sin, but he also brought on sin's consequences. Everything now is messed up. And so in order for God to gain back what Adam rightfully lost, God had to send another Adam, a second Adam. And that's what the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans calls Jesus. Jesus came as fully man to be the second Adam, to gain back what the first Adam lost. And uh, so I just want you to, to realize that, that when the disciples were looking at Jesus, they weren't just thinking, wow, this is God with us. No, they saw him as a man. They saw him as a man. And they were only progressively coming to an awareness that he was the Messiah and that he was God in the flesh. But it just took them a long time to register that because he just looked like a man to them. And uh, so anyway, so you have in... Uh, verse 2, it says that he was transfigured in front of them. What that means is, is the radiant glory of God showed uh, that it came from the inside of who Jesus is, his deity. It radiated out. And th this is a key characteristic of God the Father. This is what Moses wanted to experience of God in Genesis 
33:18 when he said, "Please show me your glory." It was the radiant, beautiful, but it was I think it's more than light. It was the presence of God that was not just a light. It was it was I would I would think that there's something in that that's just enlivening and intoxicating just we we would love to be in that to experience the the glory of god it was what the angels there in the bethlehem fields uh, had around them the glory of the lord shone round about them and so even the israelites when they were wandering through the wilderness had the glory of god it showed up in the pillar of fire by uh, the pillar of fire at night and the glory cloud during the day. So the fire at night, the cloud during the day, and so um, so this is what's going on. Jesus, God the Son, living his life out as fully man, is radiating this glory that is always associated with the Father. Well, then you see in verse 4 that you've got two guys that show up, Elijah and Moses. So what's going on here? Well, um, Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you ask a Jew, if you ask an Israeli what those books are, they would say, well, that is the Torah. Torah, meaning that is the law. So Moses is associated with the law. Elijah, he's not so much associated with the law. He was a prophet. In fact, he was the greatest prophet in the Old Testament scriptures, the greatest of all of the prophets. And so you have Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets. Moses and Elijah, the law, and the prophets. And honestly, if you look, there's a couple of uh, couple of places in the New Testament where it refers to the entirety of the Old Testament by simply calling it the Law and the Prophets. And so, when Moses and Elijah showed up, they were representatives of the entirety of the Old Testament coming to inspect Jesus, just as you had the shepherds showing up at Jesus' birth shepherds to inspect this little lamb that was born, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, it's appropriate you would have shepherds showing up to inspect the lamb. Well, here you have Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, witnesses from the Old Testament, showing up to inspect this son of God and son of man. And they were expecting him to see that this is the one that the Old Testament pointed to. This is the Messiah. This is the one where all of the road signs in the Old Testament that were pointing to to one who would come and sit on the throne of his father David, the one who would come as the line of the tribe of Judah, the one in whose whose stripes by whose stripes we are healed. Moses and Elijah showed up to say, this is him. The Old Testament's stamp of approval on him. And if you read the Old Testament, you realize that one witness alone could not verify a fact. You had to at least have two. 
at least have two. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, One witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that's why you have at least two people showing up from the Old Testament because they were abiding by Old Testament law and they showed up to Jesus to verify that, yes, this is the one that the Old Testament pointed to. Well, in verses 5 and 6, Peter suggests that they build tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So what's he thinking? Well, I think what's going on is uh, Jesus had, on, on more than a few occasions, had kind of reprimanded Peter because Peter, whenever, you know, something was going on, Peter would jump to what was most obvious, the physical issue, and Jesus would reprimand him and point to the fact that Jesus was thinking about a spiritual principle. And so I think what Peter's doing here is he's saying, okay, I'm going to go for the spiritual principle. Here it is. We've got the glory of God, which was for the Israelites. It was the glory cloud and the fire at night. And you also have the leader of Israel who led them during their 40-year wandering, Moses, and he's right here. And so you have Moses who led the Israelites, and you have the glory of God here. Why not? Let's celebrate the festival of tents, the festival of booths, of tabernacles, shelters, whichever, whatever your translation calls it. He's saying, why don't we set up some tents and do this seven-day celebration of the reminder of how God provided for the Israelites in the Old Testament. I think Peter's going for uh, a spiritual principle and, and then looking at Jesus to say, did I pass the test? Did I pass it this time? I thought about the spiritual principle this time, Jesus. Did I pass it? And then a voice out of heaven says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And all of a sudden, everything's over. Jesus' glory, it's dissipated. Moses and Elijah, they're gone. It's just Jesus in his humanity, Peter, James, and John there. And that's another principle that I see as well, that when God's glory is revealed, and, and you know, very rarely did it ever show up in its physical manifestation of that brilliant, bright light, but when God's glory is revealed in, in, a, in a church service or in a family devotion where you just sense that God is here, it is so easy to give an ill-timed word like Peter, to just jump in and say something rather than just enjoying the Lord. You just jump in and say something and you can mess it up. That's why when God is doing something at church or in a youth group or in a home Bible study, or, or whatever else, if we sense that God is present, and God is doing something, and you can just sense his presence, you need to be so careful about what you say and what you do next. Because if you're not careful, you can cause it to dissipate, just as Peter's ill-timed words caused everything just to end abruptly. Well... Then uh, Jesus told the three uh, not to speak of the transfiguration until after he rose from the dead, but even then they didn't understand this whole thing of Jesus rising from the dead. Um, then we see in verses 11 through 13, they said, well, tell us about this Elijah. Didn't the Old Testament say that Elijah was to come? Tell us about this, because they'd just seen Elijah. 
And it did say in the Old Testament, it says in Malachi 3, uh, 1, that there would be one, a messenger that would come that would prepare the way of the Lord. And Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 actually says, Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And so they were thinking, does that mean, since Elijah was just here, does that mean it's about over? That Jesus, you're about to set up your kingdom. They were trying to make sense of it. Um, I, I believe that the verses in Malachi uh, were kind of... It was, it was a foreshadowing that Elijah legitimately showed up at the transfiguration. John the Baptist figuratively was John was uh, the Elijah. But I think that the two witnesses in Revelation are going to be Moses and Elijah again. I, I could be wrong, but I think it's going to be Moses and Elijah. Once again, uh, all of the... the things that were talked about and prophesied in the Old Testament and even the elaboration that we see in the New Testament regarding end times events. I think that uh, once again, you have at least Elijah, maybe even Moses showing up as the two witnesses, but uh, but they were trying to understand it because they just seen Elijah, but Jesus was essentially saying, not yet, not yet. Well, then we have the power of faith over a, a demon, and uh, a man came to Jesus and said, hey, your, your disciples couldn't cast the demon out um, of, of my boy. Jesus, in verse 19, looked at the disciples and said, you unbelieving, you untrusting generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Jesus was saying that the, was saying that the disciples were not able to cast the demon out, because they were not trusting in Jesus and trusting in his words and trusting in the fact that he had given them authority. Friend, I'm telling you, that's, that's where a Christian's power comes from. It comes from trusting in the person of Jesus and comes from trusting in the words that Jesus has given to us. And Jesus was just expressing disappointment with them whenever their lack of trust enabled them not to do what Jesus had desired for them to do. And that's certainly possible of us as well. So we've got to be so careful. One other thing I see in verse 24 in this section is where the Father said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Boy, could that, that, that would be so wonderful if that would be our prayer. Lord, I do trust you. I do trust you, but I don't trust you completely. Help me where I failed to trust you, Lord. Um, friend, I'm telling you that belief and faith, those are wonderful words. But in our current American culture, as we've defined them, belief and faith tend to focus on our mind tend to focus on our brain, that yes, I believe that, that's, that's talking about the brain. Yes, I have the faith, well, that's talking about the brain. But I think that whenever you see belief and faith, you need to just kind of insert another word that really grasps the meaning of pistuo, uh, the Greek word that is often used that's translated believe and faith. And uh, what it implies is much more than the head knowledge. It's trusting. Trusting so that you're able to move from merely head knowledge to actually doing things for Christ because you are trusting in his power. 
Um, and so he said, Lord, I, I trust you. I just, I don't have enough. Help me in my untrust. And man, that we could live that way. Well, then we see, I just, we got to quickly get through this. The second prediction of Jesus' death. And then we've got people um, that are doing things in Jesus' name. Um in uh, verses 38 through 41. And one of the things I see is just the grace of Jesus. You know, uh, we would often say, you know, if they're not for us, they're against us. You know, we would kind of draw the line that way. But Jesus did it just the opposite. If they're not against us, they're for us. And Jesus was much more gracious in how he related to people. The only people he ever consistently got angry at were the uh, the religious folks who believed they had it all together and they didn't have a clue. They had the head knowledge, but it was just head knowledge. Their heart was cold. Their heart was wicked. Their heart did not desire the Lord. They were using the 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 word of God and and their their um, ministry as a means of their own personal gain. Those are the only people that Jesus really ever got angry at. Um, when you see him relating to everybody else, he was just so gracious. Man, we could we could deal with a we could use a lot of that, couldn't we? The other thing finally is in verses forty two through fifty. Um, once again, Jesus is telling the uh, disciples um, about this whole thing of being serious in our walk with the Lord. Verse forty three: If your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell uh, and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. Um, Jesus isn't saying that cutting your hand off is going to keep you out of hell. He's not saying that. And in no instance do we see that anyone cut their hand off. Jesus is exaggerating for effect. He is saying that if you have some part of your body, whether it's your hand, your feet, your eyes, whatever your brain it's really your brain and your heart really it's really our brains and our hearts that are the the source of sin if there is something there that keeps calling us and luring us back to sin and we keep doing it then we're going to demonstrate that we never were truly saved because a saved person doesn't act like that and jesus said it would be better for you to do whatever you have to <laughs> to stay out of that place called hell once again, he's not saying self-mutilate in order to get to heaven. That is not presented ever in Scripture as a way to get to heaven. It is repentance and faith. But here we see Jesus focusing on the behaviors and focusing on the seriousness of sin. Friend, I'm telling you, if you really want if you really want to get serious about pursuing holiness and trying to kill sin in your life, just read Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50, the end of our reading for today. Read that and listen to Jesus. Read it over and over and over, and you will hear Jesus scare the bejeebas out of us by uh, saying, you know what? He said, if you cause someone else to sin, if you cause, uh, you know, one of these little ones, and he's referring to a, he's referring to a believer as like a child in the faith. He said, if you cause one of these little ones to fall away, what's that mean? It means if you intentionally cause someone else to sin, 
to sin, to fall away from that relationship. They didn't lose their salvation, but they've fallen away from the Lord. He said, it'd be better for you if you had a heavy millstone hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Jesus said, it'd be better for you to just either commit suicide or somebody to kill you than for you to cause somebody else to sin. Friend, I'm telling you, this is serious, serious language. And we need, we need this. This is, the, this is what the revivalists of years ago that saw God move powerfully, this is, this is what fired them up. And this is what the people in the pew uh, knew and responded to is that God did not toy around with sin in our life. But it's unfortunate that in our age where we have, I think it's good that we have discovered grace in a very beautiful way, but we've also presumed on grace and uh, have used it to excuse a life that is not pursuing holiness. I would just once again encourage you to go back and reflect on Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50, and listen to Jesus talk about how serious it is that we take holiness seriously. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you, and Lord, I pray that you would that you would help us on the road to holiness, Lord. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Philippians where it says that it is you who work within us, both to will and to do. So, Father, you are the one. Jesus, you are the one who gives us the want to, the will to do it. But you also are the one who enables us to make good on that and actually cultivate holiness, obedience to your word, hating sin in our heart, and killing it in our bodies, in our life. Lord, I pray that we would discover the joy, the happiness that comes in pursuing you and enjoying you and obeying you and killing sin in our life. Lord, help us to see how serious it is to do this, but also make it clear just how happy it is to have a heart that is enjoying you. Um, Lord, I'm reminded of the psalmist that said, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Lord, let us love you and love your word and love holiness. And uh, Lord, please cultivate that in us. The world needs to see people who are on fire for Jesus. Lord Jesus, we want to be that. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we have gotten to the end of another episode, and I'm so glad that you've joined us for this time. Uh, I just want to encourage you to keep on reading through Scripture. Once again, want to let you know that if you just feel like these podcasters are a little lengthy, and I'm trying to keep them below 30 minutes, but there's so much stuff. Um, and it's not just the stuff, but some of these things, I just feel like I have to un spend time unpacking it, or else I'm just going to go quickly over it, and nobody's going to really listen and catch it. So anyway... Um, 
But don't feel like you have to listen to every podcast, but you do need to spend time in God's Word every day. So if nothing else, you could get the, the podcast in the mornings, and if you don't have time to listen to the podcast, at least uh, look at the, the title where I've got the, uh, the passages of Scripture, and at least spend time in God's Word for yourself. But, uh, but I'm so grateful that many of y'all are listening, um, and I'm just enjoying knowing uh, that, uh, that many of you all have gotten with me and said that this is helping you grow in your knowledge and love for God's Word and your application of it. So uh, that's just wonderful. I'm looking forward to spending time with you tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.